Welcome along to 98 and Out, the weekly cricket show right here on Phoenix FM. Now, as the show reaches its third anniversary, I thought it'd be a good chance to look back at three years of 98 and Out. And in particular, let's just look at some of the amazing guests that we've had on the show during that period. I still pinch myself as some of the people that we've convinced to speak to us. But uh, let's just take some time to reflect and remember some of the high points that we've had on 98 Not Out. Okay, let's start off by our chat with the newly appointed Managing Director of Cricket at the ECB, Mr Rob Key. And we started our conversation by asking him about playing and covering T20 cricket at Chelmsford. Chelmsford for me. That, I mean, what do you call it? Fortress Chelmsford. It's exactly what it feels like when you yeah. turn up there. I mean, even the eagle gets that. People have a pop of the eagle <laughs> mascot at Chelmsford. <laughs> and I remember them sort of going round the ground on the tunnel. Anyone swearing will be sent out. I, mean, I let one through my legs and a whole chorus, the entire crowd was sort of swearing at me at one stage, <laughs> giving me a volley of abuse. Um, but it's also one of the great grounds. That it's one of the experiences that you take away with you when you finish playing. You know, yeah. you remember those moments. You know, in footballers must have it all the time when you go to Liverpool or wherever else it is. Chelmsford was one of them where you just, you know, it, it was it made you, you know, it was a great fun place to go and play and a very good pitch as well. I think you're right. I think when we've had players. Uh, on this show that from various counties and even various countries all have fine words to say about T20 nights at Chelmsford and I think you're right and you know it goes back quite a long way it's not a recent thing I can remember watching Andrew Simons playing down there and he was brilliant because he was getting a volley from the crowd but he was giving it back in equal (laughs) measures and it was brilliant because the whole thing ended up being really good humoured and the steam was taken out of all of it and I think when the game finished, he sort of came down, was quite happy signing scorecards and posing for selfies <laughs> or whatever. And so, in, in that respect, everyone sort of went home with uh, with smiles on their faces. Yeah, yeah, you'd say, wouldn't you? I mean, Chelmsford has, along with Taunton, I think, has been the ground that, that's got T20 right from the start. Mm. It's always, you know, it's not always been a great crowd at the Oval. The Oval does it brilliantly now. Yeah. But I've played at the Oval in front of, you know, 2,000 people, whatever. Now it's 25,000. Chelmsford and Taunton, the same, have done. Have just got it from, from yeah. day one. They've got T20, and it, you know, and that's why we remember going and playing there. That's, and often, they call it the Battle of the Bridge, where I say, oh, what are going to do with the bridge? You know, who, wants, who wants a bridge? But anyway, you know, I think it's a... You know, I think it, as a Kent player, it was often the decider as well, it seemed. They'd sort of work it out. So whether it was at Canterbury or, or Chelmsford, that Kent-Essex game was, was a chance to yeah. go through somewhere. One of the features of Keyes' time in the commentary box was his often hilarious sparring matches with Nasser Hussein. And Rob explained to us that this went back to their playing days and uh, also was a factor in him naming his book Oi Key, let him explain. So in my test debut, one of Essex's favourite sons, probably after Ronnie and Ashley Cowan and Mark Eilert and 50 other names, was NASA. <laughs> <laughs> and NASA was a scary captain back then for us younger kids, Andrew Flintoff, people like that. And I'm sort of in the flips, and 
NASA shouts out when I'm chatting to Fred, my best mate, Freddie Flintoff, and he just shouts out, Oi, key, you fat so and so. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't put you there to chat to your fat mate all day, concentrate you, you know, and he just volleyed me from mid off. Gang Gooley sort of looked at me laughing, and I'm thinking, Oh my gosh. And Fred just turned around and said, don't drop one now, Bob. I said, no, you're not wrong there. So he said, I said to Nassau, so I'm going to call it Oikea, you know. And I didn't get away with the whole thing. But uh, now my big mate, Vlad, is... Um, yeah. yeah, the title of my book. Well, he's he's such a he's such a happy-go-lucky knockabout pl- person <laughs> these days on Sky, isn't he? <laughs> he is one of my favourite. I have to say, he is one of my favourite people. I think in the world, and I never thought I'd say that when I was, <laughs> you know, a young twenty-three-year-old. But you know, he had a job to do. Nass, he was a very, very good captain. Yeah, a very well, tough captain. I was I was a contemporary of his at club level. Uh, oh yeah, good luck with that. He must have thrown <laughs> his bat a bit, didn't he? <laughs> Yeah, he, he didn't mind the acerbic comment, you know. You've just, you've just got out to a ball that you couldn't do anything with. It managed to try and get out of the way of it, and, but yet yeah, managed to knuckle it to the wiki keeper, and you trudge off and then just stood there on the boundaries, Mr. Burns. And, <laughs> <laughs> and yes, uh, yeah, he doesn't use those words on the telly anymore, does he? <laughs> no, he's a brilliant. He's a brilliant commentator, one of the best in the world. And he, you know, he's also what I like about him is, is that, as you know, he's not one of those blokes who's going to have any small talk. So he'll sort of walk in that. Hmm. And you might not have seen him for a few weeks, although we're on WhatsApp all the time, where he's abusing me. And he's like, right, mate. But there's no like taxi driver. You know when you get a taxi and you're like, all right, mate, you've been busy tonight. You know, and you 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 feel you have to talk for the next. The duration yeah. of the journey. Yeah. NASA just won't say a word. No. You know, and there was one I said to him, You can't see a game of golf in Seven Oaks. And oh. he just went, Don't like golf, don't like you, don't like Seven Oaks. So <laughs> said, Fair enough. You know, and I, I love him for that, really. I think. I think when I was 23, I used to think he was being serious and just thought, Oh my God, you know, what's this like? like you know, and whereas now you sort of realise, and he. If I ask him for something, so like, he's so generous. You listen to NASA, because his word is, you know, he's a, one of the most, you know, he's one of the best pundits commentators in the world, but mm. he's very generous for us, especially me who didn't play much international cricket, where he'll say, oh, that point that Deezy made, or Rob Keady, or Nick Knight, or, you know, some of the lesser cricketers, mm. he almost gives us validation at times. He's very generous like that, because he could just do it his own way. But he's very quick to praise people along the way, which he wasn't as a player. Having made it into the Sky commentary box, we then asked Rob if he was phased sitting alongside some of the biggest names in the game. Not really, because I sort of think everything's, you know, cricket's a harder game. You know, cricket, someone can, you know, Dave Masters can deck one back and do your first ball and you look like you're, you know, and it feels like the world's coming to an end. Whereas... It's slightly different in commentary now. You're there to give an opinion, and I sort of back my opinion, I suppose, on it. And you know, no, and they they're just good people. They make it easy um, with what I'm doing, I suppose. And I, I was, you know, I've always been very like I did it for a long time. I always thought I did an apprenticeship with Sky because I I could do it sort of ten, twelve years before That's right. I actually retired. And also, it's with a guy today at my daughter's cricket called. Alamgir Sherriar, who played a bit for Kent and Worcester, if you remember. Mm-hmm. 
and Sherry was a bowler. You know, he got 500, but he got sacked. And he didn't get to have his send-off. You know, he didn't get to do everything he wanted in the game. You know, I, when I retired, I was ready to retire. You know, I, I was done. I'd had a great, you know, I'd had not a great career, but I, for me, I'd enjoyed every minute of it. And I was ready to move on. Unlike, you know, Freddie Flint, I finished at 30 with lots more that he wanted to do. Um, so, you know, it, it was quite an easy transition and I was very, very lucky to have this job with Sky. That it's, um, you know, that it's made it simple. I remember you being one of the first, when they used to have um, a player or two mic'd up during T20 games and you were always one of those that I remember being being on quite often and and, and, and often being really good value as well. So. <laughs> yeah, a lot, of the, a lot of the time when I was... Um, Doing that, I, I'd been a pundit in a studio. I started doing, I feel like I earned my corn at Sky with, you know, doing Bangladesh, New Zealand in the middle of the night, stuff like that. So yeah. then a lot of the guys, the producers and stuff, were friends of mine. So when they asked me, I didn't really feel like I had a choice. And also, I, I sort of got early on with T20 in particular. I think cricketers, we think we're much more important than, than actually we are. You know, we're there oh, to yeah. Try and oh, yeah. have a bit of fun and entertain. And any insight, you learn, that's why I learned now on the other side of the fence, any insight into what you're doing is, is great to see. I love watching these documentaries, you know, whether it's on Man City with Guardiola, anything in from that, like the inner sanctum yeah. is great insight. And I think we need people to be playing cricket, loving cricket. So the more of that you can give, the more fun you can look like you're having, then hopefully the more people want to play it, which will mean the game survives. Community radio for Brentwood and Billericay. This is Phoenix FM. Back in the 80s, Ian Botham wasn't the only England cricketer with a moustache and a mullet. He had a willing sidekick both on and off the field with Alan Lamb. And we spoke to Alan back in 2019. Let's let's start off um, now. Obviously, Alan, you were one of the key members of that or the famous England sides of the 1980s. You had a, a really good long run in uh, in that team, and you, you played amongst some absolute legends, um, Ian Botham, Mike Gatting, and Gower. Um, that must have been a great time to play for England. You got good memories of those days. Yeah, I mean, listen, you know, that was a, a great bunch of guys. I mean. You know, if you you think the late 80s um, and to early 90s, first was was sort of Gower and then Gatting and then Gooch. You know, so um, you had some you had some fairly uh, big characters in that side with yeah. Botham and Gower, um, and then you know before that was uh, Bob Willis, who was who was my first captain, was brilliant, and yeah. then um, you know. Uh, a lot of guys had, uh, had, had sort of a both had a big ego, you know, but but a great guy, and that's how he played his career, a little bit like Viv Richards. Mm-hmm. Yeah, characters, and uh, it seemed that cricket in those days, Test cricket, um, it seemed a more relaxed place to be. You know, I look at it now, and it seems to be so uptight, and the, the, the players are under so much, you know, restriction and shackles. But you guys seem to be definitely having a laugh and enjoying yourselves. Uh, well, you know, you know, the big thing we were. We were probably lucky. Um, it only really came in late. Was was the sort of uh, mobile phones yeah. and and sort of um, 
uh, feature writers, you know. Otherwise, the play, uh, otherwise all the writers were proper cricket writers that came out and had a drink with you. Mm. Um, so they got to know the game and, and they knew exactly what, and then all of a sudden they couldn't really write. We didn't want to go out with them because uh, the, their editors were saying they want a feature, want to know what the people are up to and that type of stuff. So um, we, we were lucky because we, we, we missed, you know, we got it only at the tail end. Um, but, you know, listen, we played the game hard in the field and enjoyed ourselves off. Well, wasn't there a famous mobile phone story with you and Dickie Bird and uh, Beefy? With, with, with Dickie, yeah. I mean, that that was with one of those old big sort of uh, <laughs> mobile phones which, you know, you, you plugged into your car. <laughs> had a special adapter. I mean, they were so large. And uh, that's when I took the phone out to, to, to Batty and both of them said, you better take this phone out with you. Um, because uh, we, he had a horse that was running. And um, I, I said to him, I can't go and take this phone. It's too big. I can't even get it in my pocket. He said, you take it out and we'll phone you and give you the results. I was oh, no, I don't believe this. So, anyway, I took it out. And uh, as I was going to the, to the striker's end, I walked towards Dickie. He said, what do you want? Uh, he, he said, you're at the other end. I said, yeah, I know, but I need to just have a quick word with you. And as he came close, I dropped... Um, I dropped a big phone into his pocket. You know those umpires have those big pockets? Yeah, he nearly yeah. collapsed. I said, just take a message. There's a call coming, Dick. <laughs> um, and uh, he went behind the wicket and that. And there was Waka Yunus was about to steam in. And Both had timed the bloody phone to go off just as Waka Yunus was approaching the wicket. Well, and... And he hit the button, and as the phone went off, Dickie shot his arms out, nearly decapitated. <laughs> unit. So you can imagine the, the media and everyone going, oh, "Well, what's wrong with Dickie?" and everything like that. I mean, I looked up at the, I looked up at the um, the players' box. They're all on the balcony at Old Trafford, seeing themselves. You know, so <laughs> we we could have a bit of fun there. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, there's another story actually, which. Uh, Nasser Hussein of all people was was telling. Uh, I was at a dinner once, and Nasser was talking uh, about his his Test debut at uh, Sabina Park in 1990. And who is uh, that? Nasser Hussein. Oh yeah, yeah. And he's he's walking out to the middle, and he tells a story of a, a, a screaming hot day, uh, a wicket that looked like it was laid with glass. It was so shiny and hard, um, and a very relaxed Alan Lamb is in the middle on his way to a very famous century. Um, and he talks about the what it was like to do that. And, you know, 10,000 noisy Jamaicans and Malcolm Marshall at the end of his run-up smiling at him. And um, that was that was an occasion, I mean, as well as it being an occasion for Nass, that was that was an occasion for you because, as I said, there was you scored a really decent 100 that day in quite well, intimidating Well, yeah, I mean, that was, uh, that, that, that was the first time we'd ever beaten the West Indies in, in Jamaica. Yeah. Um, so, you know, um, but I mean, I, I can recall a test match there, which I, I would say mm, I, I had my heart ticking. I, I was I was on edge. I was a uh, I, I was thinking I could get seriously injured. Yeah. Mm. And and that was I think everyone was the same. I mean, for Peter Willie to say that, that's something, you know, he yeah. didn't care for anything, you know. And it was when they got Matthew, when they got um, Patrick Patterson. Um, he came in, uh, replaced, I don't know who was, someone was injured. Anyway, they still had Marshall, Patterson, Garner, uh, and, and 
um, holding or something. Yeah. So they, um, he came in and no one had seen him. And he absolutely was lethal. And we played on a really dodgy wicket, you know, like, I mean, Gower sort of fended one off his nose, hit the shoulder of the bat and went for six over, over third man. Um, and uh, just the pace, I mean, and, and the wicket was uneven. We had Greg Thomas playing, um, and remember old Greg, the old fiery mm. Welshman. Yeah. And, um, and Greg bowled rapidly that day, even though, I mean, it was uneven wicket and whatever. And we bowled the West Indies up for 300, and we thought we'd done really well. And, yeah. and Viv Richards still says that was probably the quickest white man he had played on a yeah. wicket like that. <laughs> Was that, um, you know, even even against Tomo, you know, you, you liked playing against the West yeah, Indies though, on, didn't on that you? wicket, and uh, and we thought, well, we got a chance here, you know, three hundred. Well, let me tell you, we didn't get to three hundred in <laughs> two innings. <laughs> okay. Was that was that from um, you know learning your learning your cricketing craft in South Africa because um, that was a real good schooling for for fast bowling back in those yeah, days. Yeah, listen, we we were playing many Test matches before I came to England. Um, Curry Cup, you know, we had Proctors and Rices and Pollocks and, you know, all those, those quick bowlers. Um, and, and we played against them, so it was survival. You know, when you came in as an 18 or 17-year-old, you had to survive. And you had to be a little bit sort of, you know, don't take any crap from anyone and, you know, show who was sort of boss there. Because yeah. otherwise they just took you out. Yeah. So in that sort of sense, when I played against the West Indies, yeah, it did help. Uh, because I'd already played against these guys. But, you know, going back to that, that wicket, I mean, we got bowled out for 140 and... Uh, 100 and yeah, I think for 140 and 145. We didn't, we didn't bat again. And I think I, I got a 49 or, or 51, I think it was, and Peter Willie got a 60. Or, they were both worth like 150 on that yeah. wicket. Um, and, and there was no television. I wish, you know, because if... Yeah. You remember that wicket where um, England, they called it off? Uh, That's England, right, we had Dean Headland last week. He was Let me tell it. you, that wicket wasn't anything. That, <laughs> I mean, that was, that was slow. This it, was lethal, really lethal. And there was not one television camera there. Yeah. Alan, you, you liked playing against the West Indies, though, didn't you? Six of your test centuries were against them. You what? Six of your test centuries were against the West Indies, weren't they? Yeah, I mean, listen, I just happened to be like that. I mean, um, I always wanted to get runs against them. You know, they were the best side in the world from the 80s right through to the 90s. And, uh, um, you know, it, it was it was probably when, when they came over. I think um, I was sort of, I started in 82, 83, right? And then they came over 84. Um, and there was sort of press was saying, well, you know, he won't be able to play against the quick bowlers and that. And um, and then, um, you know, it was something I had to prove to them, you know. So uh, I want to make sure that I got runs and said, hey, I can play a bit. You did, through your through your test career with England um, in, in the 80s and the 90s, you did have a good record of scoring hundreds um, when others around you were struggling a bit. I mean, Brett just said about your hundreds against the West Indies, but um, you also got hundreds against um, Australia, for example, when uh, things weren't going quite so well. How did it feel uh, just sort of batting when, when it, it's difficult, when your teammates are letting you down and the, the opposition are trying to get on top of you like that? But you're yeah, well, listen, there. there's not much you can do, really, if, uh, 
if the other guys are not scoring, you know, you've got to just carry on and try and get enough runs for the team. And you're playing for the team, really. Yeah. So you don't really, you know, if, if others can't, don't contribute, that's it, you know. But our, our job was to try and get as many runs on, on the board and enough runs for the bowlers to bowl. And, and that was our whole thing. Apart from England, you had a long career with Northamptonshire. Uh, you won the Gillette Cup uh, and you went really close in the county championship in 1995, I think it was. Um, uh, 94, I think. Yeah, 94. 94. Okay. Uh, yeah, well, what happened was um, our chairman, our late chairman, Northampton's never won the, the, the county championship and, and that's something I wanted to do. And, and those last, when I finished playing test cricket, so 93 onwards, um, I, I, I was totally committed to Northampton. And, um, you know, we were in the top, top four mm. for, for, the, for all those years. And, and, and then we um, came very close in the uh, middle six, and, and I think Sussex didn't play ball right at the end um, in drawn games. They didn't give us a chance. But... Um, and then Warwickshire, because we beat Warwickshire, and who Warwickshire won it, and and then Warwickshire, I think Ken set them a target, and and that's how they pipped us. But um, going back to the start of that season, we we used to have um, Kirtley Ambrose, yeah, and, and Kirtley Ambrose um, was playing for the West Indies that that year, and so we had to find someone else to replace him. And I, I thought we had enough bowlers, you know, seamers and, and could get, but we wanted that we needed a good spinner. And uh, I, I had played against him, uh, Anil Kumbli, and I, I wanted <laughs> to just see from, uh, from Sunny Kavaska and Azradin. And I said to them, you know, how do you think, you know, Anil will go? He said, no, as long as you've got a great silly point and a, and a short leg, he'll get plenty because he doesn't spin the ball everyone's playing for the spin and they're mainly all just googlies that he's bowling or top spinners mm. and um we did that and and he's the last one who got 100 wickets and then yeah. we came very close to winning it's a good point because county the county championship in those days is very different to what it's like now because as you say you had these guys like you know anil kumble curtly ambrose you had greenwich at hampshire somerset you'd have had viv richards and joel garner yeah um, it was a very different county championship to what it is these days, um, would you think? Yeah, yeah, totally. I think, um, you know, you, you played against the best. Now, your overseas players are very mediocre that come and, uh, you know, I mean, you know, Northampton have been very lucky. I mean, we've had some great overseas players, um, you know, in Jason the Haydens, um, the two Aussies, Hayden and uh, the other left-hander, what's his name, um, Hussey. Um, you know, Kirtley, Ambrose, Cumbly, um, you know, Baptiste we had, uh, you know, so Dennis Lilly for a while. Um, so we were very lucky. We And then Mushtag Mahamad and Bishan Beatty, Safraz. So, you know, they had, so we play, I played with some great players. Yeah. Kapil Dev was another one who came. But so um, I think uh, that's what the, the gloss of county cricket is now. They, they don't really get to play. Uh, against um, the test players anymore. Phoenix FM. One of the ongoing conversations in world cricket is the perceived inequality in funding uh, from the ICC and that the big guys grab the lion's share of the money. 
When we talked to West Indies legendary captain Sir Clive Lloyd, he gave us his thoughts on the subject. It is starting with even with the ICC. You know, you have three three countries getting 180 million, and the rest 80. I think there should be an equal share, and I think the West Indies should be treated. Um, you know, should get a special dispensation in the sense that we have 14 islands. We're not one country, and we have to fly everywhere. And I, I, I thought that that, to me, is a situation where when we were champions for 17 years, we didn't get any more money than anybody else, you know. Um, we got the same cut from there. And the point is, you look at, fo- at football. Does United get more than City or Liverpool or Chelsea from, that, from the, the, the pot? No. They get the same amount of money. And I think that, that is, that's, that's how it should be done. What you could do is have that tier, like you do in tennis. If you're the number one player, you get X. Number two, you get X. Number three, you get X. You know, you get extra for, for getting there. But you all start out at a, at a, at a certain amount. At an, at an equal footing, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, and I think that is where they normally is, is that we have to fly everywhere. We don't. We can't go by coach. Like you come in England, they give you a coach, and you travel all the way around. It doesn't. It doesn't cost them a lot. But we have to fly from island to island, from from Guyana to Jamaica, five hours or more. You know, it so it, it, they're long flights, and and as you know, it's very expensive. The hotels that we stay in, because we have to give these guys five star hotels, and we it's the high season. So, you know, um, we'll have to pay the same amount of money that they, they, the punter that comes every year um, for a holiday. So those are all the, the problems that we have, and I think that we need to, as I said, a special dispensation. Community Radio for Brentwood and Billericay. This is Phoenix FM. You're listening to 98 in the Round right here on Phoenix FM. It's a special episode where we're looking back at some of the wonderful guests we've had over the three years since we started doing this show. Uh, that was Clive Lloyd talking about uh, the inequalities in funding in world cricket. And sticking with West Indies legends, here's another one for you. This is Darren Sammy, and he looks back on his time playing with the West Indies, lifting World Cups, and also playing with Webby at Brentwood. I don't know where to start. What a career. Uh, achievements uh, everywhere, all over the world. Test, T20, domestic. Uh, Brentwood CC. Yeah. <laughs> That's got to be the peak. Yes. <laughs> Johnny Woolford. Yeah, I haven't seen him for a while, man, but that was... Talking to Johnny today. The were something, man. Uh, <laughs> I think that was that was a stepping stone in, in my career. Just coming to England... Being at the, on the MCC Young Cricketers, it really opened me up uh, to what, you know, the prospects of international cricket, you know, just being at Lords every day training, playing against the, the, the county second teams and they have good guys coming down from the first team trying to get form and just the competition and constantly just being at cricket. You know, that really changed my mindset towards uh, the career I wanted to have. How did that co- compare to what you'd experienced uh, the, that you know before that in, in growing up in the West Indies? How did coming to Lords and England? What was different? Yeah, uh, 
first of all, the professionalism, you know, just seeing kids just, you know, devote their time and their skill to, 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 to their careers, you know, seeing how um, people operate. I remember one of my first games, um, Johnny and, 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 and all the guys said, oh man, we're playing on one um, quote-unquote shit ground today, you know what I mean? <laughs> and I was like, wow, we must be playing on, in, on, on Garakara Park. Some some ground like that in in, in Trinidad and to to Bebo where we play first class cricket. When I went to the ground, they said it was that because it was had a slope. The thing was lush green outfield. I was like, man, if I get that in the Caribbean every single day, I would be happy. Uh, and that was before all the first class great, um, games were being played in the stadiums. You know, before we used to play on the outskirts or or not the test ground, but soon after that, they said all first-class games should be played at a venue um, that is up to, to standard. But that really changed my mindset, you know, just having exposed, being exposed to coaching. Clive Radley was was amazing. Uh, Owen Docks, uh, I remember um, he coached Gloucester for a while. Um, and... Um, yeah, it's just the whole opportunity given, you know. How it came about, funny story, but um, I was very, very happy and, 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 and it was a privilege to, to, to get that early in, in my career. To the following year, whilst I was on the MCC Young Cricketers, I got called to, to represent the West Indies team. And uh, some incredible moments with the West Indies and captaining uh, and... Webby tells me from my research that, uh, from the research we've both been doing, because when we have big names on, we got to put the homework in. <laughs> no man, I'm, 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 I'm a small, I'm a small, I'm a small fish. You know, I'm a small fish in a big scheme of, of of cricket. There's not much to research about. Clive Lloyd told us he looks up to you. <laughs> I, that's my so Clive Lloyd, so Vivian Richards. You know, growing up. Although I didn't see much of them, but just listening to my father and the, the, the older folks speak about these, these gentlemen, you know, they really, you know, changed the face of, of, of West Indian cricket, you know, um, especially, you know, Saviv, uh, the era in which he played, you know, and what that team represented. You know, today you, you see... You know, all the Black Lives Matter movement, um, you know, you talk about race and equality and all these things. And if it's one thing I understood from speaking to guys like Sir Clive Lloyd and Sir Vivian Richards, especially when they taught England, the way black people, the sense of pride and, 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 and the way they walked in the streets when we're still this, played against England because we used to dominate back then. You know, they could go in the office and walk with the head up high. That represented something um, which to me, when I started playing, you know, I took that on with me and I think I played the game in a manner, um, I might not have the numbers of the greats, but in terms of my attitude, you know, I, I always played the game with with um, that in my mind, what West Indies cricket represent to, to, to our people. Two T20 World Cups are not bad numbers, though, are they? 
I had a good team. I had a great team. You know, I had a team full of experienced guys playing, you know, across the leagues, across the world. You know, now you, you see England giving the guys um, the opportunity to go and play in the IPL and they've been a little bit more, um, you know, easygoing. Um, we have had that opportunity to, to play T20 franchise cricket across the globe. It might, come, it might have come at, at a cost, you know, and, and a, a sour relationship with, with board and players. But what it did in terms of, you know, exposing our players and, and, and the, the contribution uh, it made to us winning two World Cups, that, that was massive. So for me as a, as a leader, as a captain of the team, it was, you know, it was quite, um, in, in terms of the cricket, it was quite easy, you know, leading these guys out there on the field when they were, they were seasoned uh, campaigners. That 2016 final and that last over. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think. Move on. Move on. <laughs> <laughs> that was that was that was something else. That was something else. It was. It was, and you know, every time I I relieve the moment, you know, um, you know, people talk about you know Carlos Bradford and that famous quote from um, that famous moment from from Ian Bishop. But if you look at, you know, what the West Indies team went through, you know, during, before and during that, that World Cup, you know, I, I tell guys 2012 was, was great. But I've never played on a West Indies team where I've seen a group of men so focused and determined to win. You know, because they know, we knew what winning meant and what it could do for us, you know, um, and, and the statement and the message we could, you know, um, put out there um, after we, because of winning. And I thought that energy and, and that uh, mindset carried all the way through till, till the last six balls of, of the tournament, you know, and we on the bench was believing and Carlos and, and Marlon Samuels, you know, they just knew that they, they had the belief in, 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 in the guys um, out there. And Carlos, he just hit four sixes. I think, <laughs> honestly, if we had... If oh, Ben Stokes. Yeah, yeah but, but then you look at the two careers, how, what happened after that. I think Ben Stokes would have, um, have uh, matured um, you know, at a, at a rapid rate, you know, and it's sad, but, you know, that probably caused the decline of, 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 of Carlos, although he's playing really well right now in the big bash. But I think, you know, it chance, it, it, people saw Carlos now from, you know, Carlos, the, the, the all-rounder, the guy who could, you know, bat to, you know, the six machine. And, you know, I think the, 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 the pressure of relieving those moments, you know, probably got the better of him over the years. But it's good to see him now, you know, bowling well and, 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 and performing, 
you know, and um, and Ben Stokes has had a, a brilliant career after this. And don't forget uh, Marlon Samuels. <laughs> what entertainment! <laughs> Mar Mar Marlon, look, just not only just on, on the cricket field, um, and that's why I said on the field my job was was quite easy. But you know, we had different uh, characters in our dressing room. Um, Marlon was one if you. You got to understand him. If you don't understand Marlon, you'll think Marlon. Um, probably a lot of people think he's he's different, you know. But I think mentally he's one of the the, the strongest guys I've, I've I've played with, you know. Knowing that you know people view you a certain way, maybe some of the things he probably brought it up on himself, you know. But knowing that. And to go out there and, and, and in the most precious situation, uh, winning a World Cup for, well, two World Cups for, for the region, you know, it shows the, the inner strength that, that he possesses. But, um, yeah, Marlon is one I always understood and I knew how to, to, um, to captain him. And um, we actually get along, get along well, you know, but, you know, he's... He's a special one, you know, <laughs> in his own way. <laughs> Phoenix FM. Well, one of our most entertaining chats was with Craig Johnston, who many of you will know as being a footballer for Liverpool. But uh, he did actually start life as a cricketer. And then after football finished, he took up songwriting, amongst many other things. And here he told us the secret of his musical success. Uh, the Anf Anfield Rap um, was a song about um, all the dressing room characters and their accents. And uh, rap hadn't arrived in England, but I always loved the old Run DMC tunes and, you know, Walk This Way and all of that stuff. And, uh, and every year, you know, clubs did these awful, awful uh, yeah. club final songs, you know, like Glory, Glory, Man United or... Blue is a colour, football is a game. Even, even we had uh, Diamond Lights with Chris Waddle and uh, <laughs> uh, Glenn Hoddle, you know. Um, and the funny thing is they were dreadful. So uh, we, we got approached, the club got approached the players to do a cup final song because we're playing against Arsenal in one of the league cup finals. So we heard it and all the players went, oh, that's dreadful. And I was always writing little speeches or sketches or jokes or gags in the dressing room, you know, presentations, stupid stuff, because I'm, I'm a good writer. So um, they said, well, why don't you write a song? So I said, uh, okay. So um, I went away. The next day I, I wrote the rap and I brought it back. And they said, this is great. Let's do it. And uh, it got to number three in the charts. Uh, but we got beat by Arsenal in the League Cup uh, and Madonna got number one with Like a Virgin. So it got to number three in the charts. But the whole thing was about Scousers, two Scousers in the dressing room, uh, Steve McMahon and John Aldrich. And it was about uh, Danish people, Zimbabweans, Australians, Scotsmen, Welshmen. Uh, uh, Johnny Barnes is about Jamaicans. <laughs> it's about all these uh, 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 accents. So... Uh, Chris Jordan, we'll give you a bit of it. We'll give you a bit of it. 
So Aldo, Aldo and Steve McMahon are walking down the street and it's like, but I sold though, sound as a pound. I'm custy la, but there's nothing down. The rest of the lads ain't got it sus. We'll have to learn them to talk like us. And then Bruce comes on, you know, and he says, uh, I'm repping near me and I'm repping for fun. I'm the goalie, the number one. You can take the mick, don't call me clown. Any more cheap man, you're going down. <laughs> so it went on and on like that. And then, uh, you know, uh, the jocks, the jocks, which would, would be uh, Dal Gleish, uh, wasn't soon as he was gone. Uh, Alan uh, Hansen. Stevie Nickel, and uh, I think it was, uh, but, oh, uh, we're four Highland lads, Ochai the new, and there's four of us and only two of you. So if you want me trouble and you don't want a slap, you'd better teach us the Adfield rap. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I went on and on like that. And then, uh, then, then, then what I, I, I got, uh, uh, Brian Moore. Remember the beautiful voice of Brian Moore? Yeah. The commentator, soccer commentator who did all the FA Cup finals. And he, he came on, he said, their biggest stars, uh, they've won the league, bigger stars than Dallas. They've got more silver than Buckingham Palace. Uh, and Steve, Steve McMahon, sure can rap. About time he had a, an England cap. So Bobby, Rob, come on, Bobby Robson, he's the man, because if anyone can, Macca can. So the lads loved it, and we said, "Okay, let's let, let, let's do it." And uh, I, I had a little role in there, and uh, but it was all about the fun and the crack of our dressing room. And the funny thing is, to this day, it uh, it stands up, you know, as a a piece of culture. The Scousers love it. Uh-huh. It's considerably better than any other football song that's ever been written, with the possible exception of the other one that John Barnes was involved in. World in Motion. Yeah, yeah. Well, I wrote that section. Ah. Did you really? <laughs> oh, wow. I, I, I'll tell you the story. I, uh, I was uh, sitting down. I used to live in um, a place called High Wycombe. And, uh, and this was years later. And this was uh, 96, right? This was uh, European Championships. So what happened was... Um, it was a Saturday, Sunday after Sunday, I think. And the phone rings, and it's Johnny, Johnny Barnes and, and uh, Peter Beardsley. And they said, um, uh, Kruggy. And it's a long story, but my nickname at Liverpool was Krug. It's a long story. Kruggy, <laughs> Kruggy. You've got to get down to Bisham Abbey, uh, to the studio in Bisham Abbey. And I said, why? And they said, because we're here with a band called New Order, right? And they've just figured out that we can't sing. <laughs> and I said, what? And I said, I know, everyone knows you can't sing. And they said, yes, but we've got this song to do for the World, uh, the World Cup. So they said, well, I said, well, what do you want me to do? They said, well, you've got to come down and write a rap for us. And I said, mate, I'm with the kids, blah, blah, blah. I said, look, give me 10 minutes. So it wasn't far. So I drove down there. And then um, I heard them sing, Chrissy Waddle, Peter Beardsley. <laughs> Bigger Barnes, oh mate, it was atrocious. And there was a bunch of the old <laughs> and the, the New Order guys were beside themselves because that's a tricky song. Love's got the world in motion. You know, you can't sing. It's a tricky song. And they were nowhere near it. They it was they couldn't use it. It, it was they were going to abandon it. So I said, look, I'll wrap give me a napkin. So I went like this. So I just said, okay, big digger barnes. Uh, catch me if you can, because I'm the England man. And what you're looking at is a master plan, you know. 
I ain't no hooligan, and uh, hooliganism was a big deal at the time. Yeah, this ain't no football song. Three lions on my chest. You know I can't go wrong. We're playing for England. We're singing the song, and that was it. Now listen to this on the on the album on the album, right? It says written by New Order and Craig Johnston. I've never got a single single uh, penny of royalties. And it was number one for like six weeks or more. Oh, yeah, huge. Right, right. Yeah. I know. Not a single royalty. So if you New Order blokes are listening, right, you, you owe me a pint of Guinness or a, or a pint <laughs> of ale or something, but uh, you owe me. You owe me. And so does Digger Barnes. Across Brentwood and Billericay, this is Phoenix FM. One of the first pinch yourself moments, and believe me, we've had many, um, but one of the first was when the great Australian player Shane Watson agreed to have a chat with us. It was hot on the heels of him announcing his retirement uh, from T20 cricket. And we caught up with him when he was in his hotel room quarantining as he returned to Sydney. And he looked back on his career and gave us his top three highlights. The, the, the spanning of your career marks a really interesting period in cricket. So, I mean, you're, you're finishing now with COVID and a very unusual IPL tournament, but taking it all the way back to the beginning of your professional career, it kind of spans the lifetime of IPL, um, test cricket, the emergence of white ball. Um, and you've rubbed shoulders with some absolute legends, both within your side and opponents as well. Um, mm. And I think from just seeing some of the tributes that have been put, I mean, there's some big names uh, giving you, uh, you know, the best wishes and whatever else. It's quite amazing. Yeah, I've, look, there's no question. I, I've and I've never taken for granted how incredibly fortunate and lucky I've been throughout, you know, throughout well my life, but especially through my career. Career, the people that I've been so fortunate to be able to play with. This, like, especially the start of my career for the first, um, you know, up until I was probably 27, 27, I was playing with, um, especially in one day cricket with some of the greatest cricketers that have ever yeah. played the game. You know, Shane Warne and Glenn McGrath and Ricky Ponting and Matt Hayden and, and those guys as a starting point. But then the the beautiful thing about being able to play in the IPL on these T20 franchises as well has been being able to play with some um, some incredible people as well. So, like, for the Sydney Thunder one year, I, was, I played with, you know, one of my, like, heroes in a big way. I think this guy's Superman is Jacques Callas. I played with him um, for the Sydney Thunder for one year, which was just one a huge highlight been able to play in the IPL, like be, being captained by Shane Warne at the Shane Warne at the Rajasthan Royals for for four years, playing with Raul Dravid, and the last um, few years as well, playing with MS Dhoni, which has been which has been a huge highlight, as well as Virat Kohli, AB De Villiers <laughs> playing with those guys. So like it's just it really is. I feel so ridiculously fortunate, and I and I, I I've never taken it for granted because it's um something that I've I've soaked up as much as I've as, I've, as I can you know, talking. And getting as much information as I can out of them and learning learning from them. And probably the one that stands out the most out of everyone is like my favorite cricketer of all time. That's Viv Richards. Yeah. Uh, he was he was my um, the mentor at my team in the uh, Pakistan Super League, quite a gladiators for the last three years. And honestly, that has been the time that I spent there every year. Oh, it was just it was honestly it was heaven. Every day I got to wake up, go down to breakfast, or hang with him, and just. He's probably got sick of me in the end because I just peppered him. I had that many questions stored up throughout my whole career, my whole life that I wanted to ask him. And it was just that, honestly. He's got such a, an aura about it. Crazily good. Oh, 
he's the coolest dude on the planet. That's that's what I think. Like just obviously the way he played and the way he took everything on. He's just a super. He's just a super cool guy and a super generous, nice guy as well. Um, to be able to just want to give up all the information that he's got inside him, which is just a, a beautiful thing as well. When you're so like all, all those names you just listed there, Viv seems to be the one that you're you're genuinely starstruck by. Oh, look, I am from a lot of them, but uh, I suppose, yeah, Viv is, yeah, of course. <laughs> he was someone just, you know, as I was growing up, just, you know, I just couldn't believe how cool this dude like was. No other. Um, yeah. But then, you know, I've been so fortunate to, to get to know and really, um, and you know, very good mates with a few of the guys with whom my idols growing up, like Shane Warne and Ricky Ponty and Glenn McGrath. So in that regard, um, yeah, whereas um, Viv Richards is more just like a, a star at the end of <laughs> the end of my end of my career that it's grabbed onto. <laughs> Would you fancy playing against uh, that great West Indies side from the eighties with Holding and Richards and all of that? Look, it would have been an amazing challenge. There's like, and I'll, so I would have loved that, but it would have been like, it would have been horrible <laughs> to, to face like just get peppered, just get peppered by that. But still, like, it it would have been an amazing challenge to see like how you'd fare, um, but with it like with a helmet. <laughs> oh God knows how they did it without a helmet. I've got absolutely no idea. It's madness. <laughs> well, what, yeah. looking back over your career, um, and this is a hard one, but um, what, are the, what are the moments that you will treasure and when you're old and grey and sat with your grandkids and saying to them, mm. I did this and I was with you, what, what, are the, what are the standout moments from your career? Um, again, I've been so, I have been so fortunate to have a yeah. lot of incredible memories, um, but the, the, probably the three that really come to mind straight away um, uh, won the, the 2007 World Cup win that I was fortunate enough to sort of play in such an incredible team. Like I was like the, you know, one of the ones who just snuck in as a, as a number seven sort of all rounder. Uh, that was like to be able to be a part of a, a World Cup uh, team and win where the, we went through and the team went through undefeated is a, was, was phenomenal. And that, and that was the second um, World Cup in a row that the Aussies had, had done that. Um, the, the 2013 14 Ashes series at, at home where we won, you know, five nil after having some not great You're memories right. of previous three seasons. <laughs> I know. Cause we got, we got beaten at home in 2010, uh, 2010, 11. That was <laughs> not a good time to be around. That was amazing side though, wasn't it? came down. Oh yeah, of course. Um, but yeah, some heads rolled around, <laughs> around that time <laughs> as always happens if you lose an Ashes, especially at home. <laughs> and then the two Ashes series, um, that I played, uh, away as well, you know, England were too good. So that was a really special moment, um, you know, to be able to feel. Also, the the thing that stood out for me at that time was that was a, one of the that's one of the first times in my career where the Australian public they really galvanised behind the team. There was no one, there was no one in the gun. There was no, there was no. Everyone was just there to totally support and and get behind us. So that was special. And the final one was the the 2015 World Cup. Um, win at the MCG like that was at, at home like as special as it is to win a World Cup let alone at home like you know the English guys were you know were fortunate enough to be able to do as well that's something that really does stand out as well Shane Watson there reliving some of the greatest moments from a glittering 20-year international career now somebody else who we chased for ages and finally managed to get on the show was Mr Nasser Hussein and he talked to us about making his test debut for England at Jamaica in 1990. Phoenix FM. They don't come much tougher than your personal debut at Sabina Park in 1990. Um, what are your memories of uh, striding out there that day? 
absolutely surreal. I mean, I was lucky, obviously, because Graham was there, Gucci, you know. I remember we are, it just shows that I think we we're, I don't know if those hotels are still around anymore, the Trust House 40 or Hotel <laughs> in Leicester. We were playing at Leicester and Gucci tapped me on the shoulder and said, oh, Nass, you know, um, you're coming to the Caribbean with me. And I was like, oh, yeah, Graham, we get on really well, mate, but I don't really want to go on holiday at the Caribbean with you. <laughs> no, no, you've been selected to play for England. I've just literally come out of Durham University. It was my first full season with Essex. There was the whole... Um, Rebel tour thing going on. So England were losing half their players because of Rebel tours. They were being smashed again by Australia. And then suddenly I'm at Sabina Park and I'm sat there and I look to my right and there's Viv Richards and I look to my left and there's Malcolm Marshall and I'm going out to bat and I've got Patrick Patterson at the end of his mark. And I remember four years earlier, Patrick Patterson had smacked on that ground. You remember the famous Mike Gatting when he walked through Heathrow Airport or whatever, and the, the interviewer said, where did that ball hit you? And Gat's nose was like two <laughs> inches away from where it should be, and he had two black eyes. And that's all I could remember. With my beak, I thought, oh, my God, that's a massive, tar that's a massive target for Patrick Patterson. And, and, the, and the, sh the surface was unreal. It wasn't Colchester or Ilford or Chelmsford <laughs> or South End. It had a shine to it. And I remember thinking, shall I wear spikes? Because those spikes are going to slip on that surface. And I thought, if I wear my tackies, my trainers, and I slip, Gucci will give me the biggest rollicking of all time. So I wore spikes, and I was so worried about slipping all over the place. And Pato, Patrick Patterson bounced me first ball, and I think boycott on commentary went something like, welcome to test cricket, young man. <laughs> or, um, and I, in, 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 and it's a long story, but even before that, we went with me and Gucci drove up to Headingley every week to, to uh, train with Jeffrey Boycott. And he had these young lads bowling off 15 yards, just bouncing us every single ball. And actually, that practice was so difficult that facing Patrick Patterson, Malcolm Marshall, Kirtley Ambrose, Ian Bishop, Ian Bishop actually got me out for 13. Um, that actually was harder than anything I've faced in that series uh, and the, because the pitches were so good in Test Match Cricket out there. Was there a story about Lammy being at the other end as you arrived at the crease and uh, leaning on his back, chewing his gum? That was the other thing about playing in that side. I literally, we had some young guns and I think Sky did this promo, which they showed last year, actually, the young guns are going to roar. It's like, okay, great. Yeah. Thanks a lot. We're really going to roar. Viv Richards, Gordon Greenwich, Desmond Ames. <laughs> but actually, also, you turn up in the dressing room and you just literally look around and they're your childhood heroes. You're actually playing. I'm 21. You know, I'm just out of Durham Uni. I've watched Lammy smash the West Indies <laughs> everywhere in his career. You've got Robin Smith there, Gladstone Small, Angus Fraser. Alex Stewart was making his debut with me. I was also, the other thing, I was taking over from David Gower, my childhood hero, um, who I had a picture of in, in my wall at university. And there I was replacing David Gower, one of the greatest ever players, um, and Lammy at the other end sort of looking at me going, oh God, we've called this bloke up instead of <laughs> Gower. Great, great choice, um, Gucci. But it was a great series. It was so much fun. If Gucci hadn't broken his hand in what was what, the third, third, fourth, te third test match, um, I think we might have won that series. Another great chat we had with another big name in world cricket was with former Pakistan captain Azhar Ali. 
and he talked about what it was like to play for Pakistan in England. The only place apart from Pakistan, I feel that we feel that it's just like playing home is England uh, because it's normally we when we play especially one day match or a T20 match we out almost outnumber yeah. <laughs> English fans um, so it is always you know pleasure to play in England because it's um, you know the condition and everywhere we, we enjoy playing in England and also the flags we don't see many flags uh, of Pakistan anywhere else than Pakistan um, you know it's England so um, I remember a one day match um, in Cardiff uh, in 2016 we lost four ODIs first four ODIs and then the fifth one and the crowd there was full and uh, full of Pakistanis so we it 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 shows that they will support us no matter what so that's uh, amazing to see. Uh, always amazing to see when we we come to England. We always get support. Doesn't matter, you know, we win or lose. We all they always come and support us. When you played India in England um, last year, that was one of the most <coughs> memorable games I've ever seen. The, the atmosphere from the crowd was was absolutely incredible. It, you know, it was almost like being at Karachi or maybe Eden Gardens or something. And and I think the players seem to pick up on that as well. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I was involved in Champions Trophy as well. With two games I played against India, one in at Weston, one in the one, 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 one uh, which was at the final at the Oval. Amazing, you know, you can't um, you can't replicate uh, that in any other game, uh, which is like uh, it puts some pressure as well. But uh, once you start enjoying it, it, it becomes uh, it exactly motivates you to do even. Um, you know more, and I was like, um, I got pumped up like in the final uh, with the the noise of a crowd. Uh, it's it's amazing, you know. It's good for for good for the game uh, when uh, these kind of games happen. Crowd comes and support their teams, uh, all in good spirits. Um, uh, you know, I I always feel that you have to support your country. Um, you know, either it's Indian fan, he should enjoy his game, that game, and Pakistani fans also should enjoy the game. Um, you know, win and lose is uh, that comes uh, with the sport, with sports, but um, the the most important thing be to come and enjoy the game, enjoy the atmosphere. You know, support your team to the to the best, and um, yeah, enjoy just keep enjoying the game. Welcome back to 98 They're Out. This is a special edition where we are looking back over our last three years of talking to some of the best names in the world of cricket. Uh, next up, we have got writer, broadcaster, commentator and former England captain Michael Atherton. And he compared the modern game to his days out in the middle. Uh, although I played over 100 test matches for England. In those days, we didn't go to the subcontinent very often. I only played one test in India out of 115, which is amazing statistic, really. We only toured India once in test matches for the entire length of my test career. But on that tour, we played in Chennai and we played in Mumbai and the pitches did spin. I don't think they spun quite as much as the Ahmedabad game, but they did spin. Um, and then you'd go to Perth, 
um, in Western Australia, you know, we'd be standing 40 yards back for Devon Malcolm. It was so fast and bouncy. <laughs> and that's the beauty of the game. That is, that is the absolute beauty of the game, that it throws up all these challenges and you have to try and overcome them. You mentioned um, about characteristics of, of various pitches and grounds. Um, Perth, for example. Now, in your day, Perth was, was long established as being a fast bowler's paradise with glassy pitches. And in Australia, a lot's changed. Perth is a good example that they no longer even use that stadium. They've built more of these sort of all-purpose venues. And it seems to be happening throughout the world. Old Trafford, your old ground, is, doesn't look anything. In fact, they've even turned it 90 degrees. Um, I, I think Old Trafford looks the better for it, I must say. <laughs> I mean... There, you're right, there are very few grounds now where I stand on the middle, look round, and can imagine having played there, Old Trafford being a classic example. It completely turned the square around. The ground has been totally transformed since I played there, and I think it looks a much better ground for it. Um, you're right about Australia. They have a number of drop-in pitches, a number of places like Adelaide and, and Melbourne that are multi-sports use, You know, play Aussie rules in the winter and cricket in the summer. And as you rightly say, in Perth now, they've built the new multi-purpose stadium, although they still might use the WACA for some games. Um, and what you want to avoid, really, is a uniformity of pitches. So we played on one in the Test match in Melbourne 2017, when Cookie, from your part of the world, got a, a massive double hundred and played brilliantly. But it was a very dull Test match because it was just a bog-standard flat pitch that did nothing. And so that's what you want to avoid, really. It's, you might as well go and play on artificial surfaces if, if that's what you're going to get. What you want is, and what used to be the the great thing about travelling Australia, would you get a different surface for every game? Your, your career, for me, was highlighted by some really good confrontations and tussles, um, real lockings of horns. Now, two that spring to mind, obviously, Alan Donald uh, in South Africa at that time, um, and also uh, Glenn McGrath, and, and you mentioned earlier, Kirtley and Courtney out in the West Indies. Um, I was lucky enough to be out in Barbados uh, back in the 90s and was there to witness firsthand what you and Alex Stewart happened to put up with. These days, would you say there were equivalents of... Uh, the one that springs to mind to me recently is, is uh, Ben Stokes and Marlon Samuels, where there was that kind of needle. Um, is it still around or is it something that's missing a bit? It's hard to say. I, I mean, obviously, I'm not out in the middle. I mean, I sense that, you know, that that level of competitiveness is still there. If you look at Virat Kohli, for example, India's captain, he's very expressive. He's very competitive, <laughs> uh, wants to win every game. I think that shines through, actually, in the way that he plays. Um, in terms of the fast bowlers, I think the standard of fast bowling in test cricket over the last two or three years has been very strong, actually. I thought it went through a slight phase where it dipped. For the last two or three years, it's been very strong. Um, Australia, South Africa, West Indies have had a comeback with fast bowling. Uh, India, you know, as good a crop as fast bowlers as, as they've ever had. Um, so it's looked really competitive to me uh, from a distance. And yeah, I mean, I, I loved all that, really. I, I love the, the, the real uh, competition that you develop with a particular opponent and it has to develop over time. So like, you know, Alan Donald, we virtually, our careers coincided. South Africa got back into world cricket in 1992, uh, which is kind of the start of my test career. And we played against each other then until I retired in, in 2001. So I played a lot against each other and you develop a, a relationship or rapport, whatever you want to call it against the particular <laughs> bowler. And, 
you know, you do it over five tests. So you keep having those battles that crop up. And I, I thought that was fantastic, really. I loved playing against him. We always got on great off the field, you know, had a bit of a ding-donger on the field. <laughs> Nothing ever went too far. You know, uh, people talk about sledging, but wasn't, you know, occasionally it would like develop out of the action, but there was never any deliberate um, intent to, to sledge or put people off their game from the start. So I loved it. thought it was great. The West Indies never said a word. Curtly and Courtney just never said a word on the pitch. They just let their, let their bowling do the talking and they were pretty good at that. You mentioned Alan Donald. Is that right that he used to target you with, a, with the bumper um, because you had difficulties ducking under it? Not really. I, I mean, I had a bad back as I went through my career and later on struggled a bit. It was a bit stiff and immobile, but not in the early days. He basically bounced anybody who came to <laughs> Greece. I mean, he was very fast. In his early days, probably actually just slightly before South Africa got back into world cricket, Alan came and played as an overseas player for Warwickshire. And he was unbelievably quick and a bit wild and woolly. And then he became a much more disciplined bowler as an international cricketer for South Africa, and he was still very quick, but maybe just not quite as quick as he had been in the early days for Warwickshire. Um, but he, along with Brett Lee and Shoei Bakhtar, uh, were probably the three fastest bowlers of my particular generation. Mike Atherton there, of course, uh, looking back uh, on his days at the crease. And as you mentioned in that conversation, his opening partner at the time in the team of the 90s was Alex Stewart of Surrey. And uh, when we spoke with Alec on our 100th edition, um, amongst many of the things we talked about, we did ask about the importance, uh, which he established, of being a wicketkeeper that can bat. You've got to be good enough at both. You know, and that's the thing. It's, you know, I get the, is he a wicketkeeper, batsman, batsman, wicketkeeper? And, and the audience say it is probably more on how well you bat as against how well you keep, I'd suggest. So there's no point picking someone who bats exceptionally well but dresses up as a wicketkeeper and just drops the ball because, you know, it's crucial that, that you can catch a ball. So you've got to get into the side as a good enough keeper. And the flip side is you've got to be a good enough batter as well to match up your keeping. So you are a, a genuine all-rounder. You know, you sh a genuine all-rounder to me can play either just as a keeper or just as a batter or just as a bowler or just as a batter. The fact you can do both skills just adds to you. Um, and, and that's where we're very, very lucky at the minute. You know, there's Josh Butler, Johnny Bairstow, and, and obviously I'm very biased um, towards Ben Folks. Ben Folks is the best keeper. Um, I've said two years ago, he's the best in the world, and people questioned it, um, saying Surrey yeah. bias and all that. I said, look, I'm taking my Surrey hat off. Just watch him. And I think in this winter in India, people now understand just how good he is. Um, and he can bat too. You know, he got 100 on test debut. He bats number five for us, um, and he, he's a proper batter. When he plays for England, he'll bat seven. Uh, and then he'll be wanting to do well against New Zealand, um, obviously with Joss Butler becoming available for the series against India. I remember talking to Bruce Welsh um, a few, quite a few years ago now, actually, when I think when Ben was still at Essex. Um, uh, and Bruce was really, really impressed with him. And I think, I think from what I've seen just following Ben's career as he's sort of progressed is... He has listened and learned. And, you know, in coming to Surrey, being alongside, obviously, yourself, but then Kumar Sangakara, for example, I mean, there were, there were a lot of people where you, you just couldn't help but improve your game 
Uh, and I think you're now seeing the results. Yeah, listen, his work ethic is, is second to none. Uh, I was aware of him from the age of, I think he was 18. Gucci, Graham Gooch had, had spoken well of him as a batsman. Um, and he was actually being, he's up there, I think he's a fielding 12th man at a test match at Trent Bridge. I was doing some media work with BBC. Anyway, cut long story short, he was out there batting in the nets early, um, early in the morning before the rest of the players got in and Gucci was there and I went out just to have a watch. And he said then, you know, look out for this player. He could be something special. That was just his batting. Forget his keep. And obviously Fozzy at Essex, who's as good as he's ever been, um, had the gloves on. Um, and then I watched him, observed him, and then did my very best to bring him to Surrey, which we succeeded in. And he's just gone from strength to strength. Um, he's just going to be, when he gets his opportunity, can he grab it? Because, you know, the names I've mentioned who are also in that England setup. Um, you, you could find a way for all three to play. You could play Bearstow, Butler and, and folks in a test match because the other two um, are exceptional batters as well. Whether that will happen, we'll have to find out. But for folks, I'm so, so pleased for him because I've seen him develop. Um, as I say, keeping, you just, you can't question, you know, that is top, top class. And now when he gets the opportunity with a bat coming in at seven, if he can show his skill sets, he'll give the, the selector of Chris Silverwood um, a real headache. Alex Stewart putting forward the case for Ben Folkes as being the next permanent England Test wicketkeeper. Another fan of the Surrey Glassman is XFM presenter Toby Tarrant, and he had this to tell us about meeting Ben on the tube. A few months back, I got on the tube, and uh, and I was with my missus, and we sat down, and I'm there, big cricket geek like myself, and I sit down, and immediately I look across from me, and you know, there's no mistaking it, that's Ben Folkes, and it was summertime, so he's. He's got shorts on. He's got beautiful, big trunk, tree trunk, wicketkeeper legs, as you'd imagine. Beautiful thighs. So ah. opposite from me. And I'm, I'm doing that thing where I'm trying to tell my girlfriend, who could have, my fiance, I should mention, fiance, I can't call a girlfriend. Yes, anymore. congratulations. Yeah, thank you very much. So, uh, so I'm, trying to, I'm trying to quietly tell her who that is without him hearing. But also, Pippa couldn't care less who that is. She's got no idea who Ben Folks is, but I'm excited. So I'm going... He's a wicketkeeper. He's played for England. Um, <laughs> anyway, I made the mistake of pointing him out to, to my missus because she spent the rest of the, the tube journey just drooling at what a beautiful, beautiful, <laughs> he is a man, beautiful he is. man he is. Oh, a he's a beautiful, beautiful man. man. Yeah. So, I mean, we said sex sells. If you, if, you know, if the ECB want to make some money on any calendars or anything, I'd buy 10, 10 <laughs> calendars if they want to. If they want to put one. If I raise 30 grand for cycling naked around Leicester Square, then can you imagine how much he could earn? Could be, could be worth a fortune. That's Toby Tarrant admitting to his man crush on Ben Folks. One of our favourite guests, in fact everyone's favourite, is David Bumble Lloyd. Uh, he's joined us a couple of times, but here he is telling us about life in the commentary box and how he has developed his own particular style. So we do miss you. That was one of the features of, um, of you know, your, your, your coverage, your personal coverage, was that whenever you were going out about whether it was in England or abroad, you would give us colour on where it was good to go and eat and drink. Um, hopefully it won't be that long before we're back and you're back um, sampling the delights of various venues. Yeah, it, it is. I mean, that's all part of the job, really. Um, cricket commentary is, is fabulous. I love the game. It's instant. You don't know what... It, every ball, as far as I'm concerned... 
in a six or seven hour day, every ball is an event. Yeah. Because me as commentator, I've no idea what's going to happen. Every ball, you don't know what's going to happen. They've got to react and you've got to give an opinion. And sometimes, and this, this is a, a criticism, give you a criticism, you shut up. Just let it go. And let it go for two overs, three overs. Just let it go. Because there's then times in a test match when you want to be, when the viewer wants to be reflective. It doesn't need anybody banging on and on and on and on. And what's happening now is a lot of broadcasters are doing three commentators in a row. So three with a microphone for half an hour. You'll always get one that wants to dominate. He wants to have it. I'll tell you a wonderful story about the sound of silence. Who, who, who was that? Who, who sang that? The uh, sound Simon of Simon and Garth Uncle, wasn't it? Simon and Half Uncle. And that Richie Benno was the master of the, the power of silence, the sound of silence. And Channel Nine did it. They put three in a row. Channel Nine when Richie was there. Michael Slater tells a fantastic story. Great man, Slater. Mad as a box of frogs, but great man. He said on two occasions, three in a row for half an hour, Richie didn't get off the mark. <laughs> Never said a word. And that, to me, is broadcasting. The power of broadcasting. There's times when you can have a bit of fun in the crowd. Let's see who's in the crowd and you do a bit of lip reading and one thing and another. Who's the great and the good? Because there's not a lot happening in the game. Then there's then the game's full on. It's absolutely full on. And you've got to be full on. And then there's that time when it's just meandering along. Shut up. Just yeah. shut up. Let the, let the viewer just let it wash over. And then just gently come back into it. I'll tell you who's good at it. Atherton. Really good. Really good. It's funny, we do a feature on the show called... Um... Cricket Birthdays of the Week, where Webby reads out anyone um, from the world of cricket who's celebrating during the week. And I was just putting the list together, and I noticed um, this week would have been Jim Laker's birthday. Um, and yeah. when I was a young lad, to me, that he was the voice of cricket. And I think he was someone else that was very, shall we say, economical with his um, with his commentary. Yeah, Yorkshireman. Uh, Jim was a Yorkshireman. And, you know, I can't tell you how nice a bloke he was. It was a fantastic boat, Jim. Time for everybody, always engaging. Um, and of course, you know, go down famously as, as 19 wickets. Community radio for Brentwood and Billericay. This is Phoenix FM. The one and only Bumble. Fantastic stuff. Now, someone who burst onto the scene in 2021 and made a real impact in the commentary box was India's Dinesh Karthik. And I caught up with him when he was in London working on The 100. And this is what he had to say. You've been a big part of The 100, this brand new, shiny new competition, which is dividing cricket fans between the traditional ones and the new fans that have come. I've been watching this really closely and looking at the, the people that are attending. It's clearly bringing new fans to the ground. It's helped the women's game. And you guys in the commentary box seem to be really enjoying yourselves. How's it been for you? Oh, I think it's a terrific tournament. Uh, just the format by itself, I've thoroughly enjoyed because it's very interesting. How I, I look at it from a very captaincy tactical point of view and it has uh, 
a lot of areas for you to work on as a captain when do you give the 10 ball over you know what sort of fields are you going are you going to keep especially the pace of the game with the fact that if you're slow you have to add an extra fielder towards the back end of the game which could prove very costly i do feel from a tactical point of view it's very interesting but what i enjoy most is how short and crisp it is if you do want to if you do want to make it a very global sport the shorter and crisper it is the better it is for the better the chances that it's going to have over a period of time uh, with uh, cricket trying to compete in olympics uh, <clears throat> and there are some major plans and if you do want to take it global uh, it's it's a great format uh, i've thoroughly enjoyed it obviously from the com box from the pod it's been a lot of fun it's uh, you know it's young and vibrant uh, set a uh, pod as well uh, just like the players there so we have had a lot of fun the the banter amongst us has been good uh, i do think um, it will take time to settle down because as you said there's a bit of friction between the old fans and uh, obviously the new ones coming in and one of the main aims is to you know integrate both those together uh, one of the main aim of the tournament was to uh, you know keep the old fans in their place but also bring in some new fans which the sport was lacking to an extent and the biggest winner of it all has been the women's cricket the kind of support they have had and the quality of cricket they have played as well it's try it's absolutely and uh, it's the same i can remember when uh, t20 first came in uh in in 2003 there was the same kind of uh debate about um the quality of this uh and, and you can go back further and further even when limited overs cricket was first brought in it was the same thing of traditionalist versus change if you like people there, there are some people that are just resistant to change but then after a while they look at it properly and they think oh it's not so bad most revolutions that have happened in the world over a period of time are resistance caused by a lot of uh, you know of people who are not look, able to look at the bigger picture and uh, eventually they decide to because they're pushed into a corner where they have to and then they realize wow you know it was the right decision by by the people who are deciding at that point of time so i think i do think this format is going through that yes there have to be a little bit of uh, you know uh, changes around it in terms of you know how you're going to schedule it uh, and i do think um, Alan Ford who was in charge of uh, you know the schedules uh, for ECB will uh, obviously have a, a tough job on his hand but if they can make it work i do think uh, this is a tournament that the players have enjoyed playing uh, most importantly it's got a lot of young spectators uh, and uh, a very partisan crowd to uh, you know each of the franchises which is which is good to watch You're listening to 98 Not Out right here on Phoenix FM, the weekly cricket magazine show with myself, Darren Mutu, and Paul Webb. This week, the show's a bit different. We are looking back at some of the best moments of the guest interviews that we've done over the last three years. Next up, David Gower, who needs absolutely no introduction. And we had him on recently to ask what are the highs and the lows of being the England Test captain. If you, are, if you, are, if you get to the level of playing Test cricket, I would assume that the captain's role is is the ultimate accolade, but is it? Well, I'm sure it is a double-edged sword. So, could you just give us an idea of what's great and what's awful about being England's Test captain? Well, you, you can simplify it incredibly easily. If things are going well, it's great. If things are not going well, it's horrible. Yeah. There you are. You know, it's 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 a very natural sort of human thing that you know, you take. Um, you're you're always aware that there is a you know, a middle ground whereby if you get overexcited with your successes, then all you're doing is waiting for it to go horribly wrong and someone to say, "Oh, there you are. I see that's the other side." 
what's not very easy, of course, is to deal with the, the abject failures. I mean, I'm delighted you've mentioned 1989, um, uh, or maybe not, to be honest, um, because it was a pretty grim time. Um, and it, it, again, to encapsulate that, I remember taking it on. I mean, okay, I took the job on because I was offered it, and it's one of those jobs it's impossible to turn down. I mean, I can't off the top of my head think of anyone necessarily who has been rung up by a head of selectors, chairman of selectors, offered the job and said, no, yeah, you must be joking. Why would I want to do that? You know, everyone goes, yeah, this is the, you know, this is the height. This is the apogee. This is, you know, this is the pinnacle. This is where you want to be. And it's the challenge you want to take on. So having experienced in my relatively brief captaincy career of 32 games, every possible combination, 89 was a nightmare because... I took it on not knowing at the time I was second choice, maybe even third choice for that matter. Um, didn't matter. I was happy to do it, wanted to do it, and had um, ambitions and expectations of repeating 85, where we'd beaten Alan Border's team 3-1. And that was, you know, that was the... Um, that Because it's the Ashes, standing at the over the, the little Ashes trophy in your hand is brilliant, is absolutely brilliant. Um, it kind of matched, I think, the achievement of winning in India as well, which was a much different sort of series much tougher sort of tour and um, for all sorts of very different reasons, politics and assassinations being right up there at the top of the list. But winning the Ashes is very special. Equally, losing the Ashes is dreadful. And the thing about the 89 series is that every possible combination of things that could go wrong, I mean, when you have that throwaway line, what could possibly go wrong? Well, it all went wrong. Yeah. Um, you know, losing the first game when we should have at least drawn it, um, finding ourselves under pressure at Lords again, um, yeah, injuries, selection. I mean, I, the one thing I would take some responsibility for was the fact that our selection policy that year was rubbish um, and that people came in, people went out. I think it was something like 29 players used in the six matches. Uh, part of that, of course, was the fact that underlying this all was the Rebel Tour that was being put together um, side by side with the Ashes, which, as ever, then the last person to find out is the current England captain. Uh, for obvious reasons. You can't alert him to the fact there's a rebel tour. But what I found, actually, of all the things I found be, uh, sort of bemusing, uh, which is, again, an understatement, was the fact that Dexter and Stewart, Ted as chairman of selectors, chairman of the committee, Mickey Stewart as the team manager, both had some knowledge of this rebel tour before I did. And for some reason, they chose not to share it with me. So it's you're operating in the dark. Uh, and by that stage, by the time it became public knowledge, which was Old Trafford, fourth test match, which we'd lost again and conceded the Ashes still with two games to go, which is not a nice feeling. Um, you know, there was so much going on. I mean, it was, it was the most depressing time. Um, I mean, it's certainly confusing, certainly. I mean, you, your emotions range from confusion to anger to everything in between. Um, you take solace from friends. You, I mean, that's, that's where you need a good sort of firm grounding elsewhere, because if you're completely wound up in what you're doing is catching, I mean, you could actually literally implode or explode, take your pick, you know, it depends, doesn't matter where you go in or out, you know, it's not a very pleasant feeling. So at that stage, for instance, at Old Trafford, I remember part of the Rebel Tour <clears throat> being announced and therefore I think it was something like six or seven players automatically not available for the last two games. Um, which, of course, is a big chunk. But by then, of course, you've lost the ashes. So, in a sense, what does it matter? But it was you know, one thing after another. I remember at Old Trafford also, David Norrie, News of the World at the time, 
um, who was someone I understood and he understood me. And, um, you know, we had a pretty good relationship as player stroke captain stroke journalist. Rang me up, I think on the, I forget which night, probably the Saturday night. Um, and he said, will you be considering your position? And we had a discussion, a semantic discussion as to whether I'd be considering my position or reconsidering my position, um, which was sort of a slight distraction from the seriousness of the situation. And I obviously said, well, no, I'm not um, thinking about my position at the moment. Let's see what happens. Uh, even then, I mean, I could have resigned. I was persuaded by Dexter and Stewart to carry on because with those seven, six or seven men going to the rebel tour, I mean, there was no one left. <laughs> so, I mean, it might have been a sinking ship, but um, therefore the captain had to go down with it. And, I mean, there's not enough time even here, not enough time in a thousand-word essay or sort of a 10,000-word essay or even a full book to really sort of go into the, the whole story of that 1989 series. Just suffice to say, at the end of it, I was rather bruised and battered. David Gower there, recalling some painful memories one of the biggest names in UK sport over the last 40 years has been Barry Hearn, who transformed first snooker, then darts and onto boxing. But he's also a massive cricket fan and we asked him if he felt he missed a trick in T20 cricket. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I've played my whole life. I, I got reasonable without being great, which is the story of my life in any, <laughs> in any sport. Um, but it's the excitement, the anticipation, the challenge, all those things, the camaraderie of a team. And, and in, within Essex, I've enjoyed, I think I started at 12 years old and I'm 72. So I've enjoyed 60 years of cricket. Played, I've been blessed to play with some great players. I've had some great matches. I've played at all sorts of levels. And I'm now down to East Anningfield second 11. And I get excited for the entire week when I'm playing on the Saturday. There's a big debate in the world of cricket at the moment about red ball or white ball cricket. Mm -hmm. um, those of us that were sort of brought up on primarily on red ball. Um, I think what lockdown has shown is that white ball cricket, T20 cricket, is vital for the survival of the game as a whole. I think without that, we're not going to get um, the county championship and maybe the, all the yeah, tests. I'm always, I'm always annoyed with myself because I like to think I'm smart and I like to think I'm first out of the block. I missed 2020, <laughs> you know. That should have been mine. It's such yeah, a good idea. It's very it's, similar to the dance, isn't it? It's very similar. To, it's got the same feeling of world-class sport played in a party atmosphere or at least a convivial atmosphere. Yeah. You know, people that are not normally drawn to the sport go. So you establish a new market, a new audience, a different demographic. And these are all so important because the traditionalists of yesterday, I mean, we're all, I'm a traditionalist, I'm a red ball man. But you know what? If white ball's better for the sport that I profess to love, then I'll go white ball. And, you know, I think we've got to take the bigger picture. What brings in the kids? What entertains the fans? What rewards the players? Put those three things together and you've got a vibrant sport. So, Barry, do you see the 100 being a success if it actually gets launched? I think it's a real tough one, and I always admire creativity. I think it's fundamental change. I won't say it won't be a success, and I think it should be encouraged. I think the day you stop trying something new, you go backwards. Mm. So I say give it a chance. You know, I think it's going to take two or three years to become embedded into the cricket society, and that's not going to come easily. 
but it's something new and I never ever criticise people that take a chance on something new because they are the innovators that save sport and the world as we know it. Could, oh, I suppose they haven't, but could the ECB talk to you about how you know, you've been successful in rebranding snooker, darts, other sports as well? Could, could they approach you and talk to you about it? We've had lots of conversations over the years. In the old days, they were very, I found them very conservative, very risk aversive. So we never really hit it off. Latterly, they've become a little bit more professionalised. I'm a specialist in the commercialisation of sports. So a lot of people talk to me. But I have one big weakness. I'm a control freak. <laughs> you know, I have to own things. I don't work for people. I'm, I'm so convinced in myself that I know the way forward. And if I say it modestly, generally I'm right. Mm-hmm. It's tough for other people to work with me because it's sort of like my way or the highway. And that doesn't appeal to the blazers or the traditionalists involved. Yeah. Or indeed those commercial people that mistakenly think they can do it better than me, he said modestly. <laughs> but, you know, I, the big problem with me is I like to be a benevolent despot. So I'm, I'm a passionate about the game. It's not just about the money, but it is about the money. It's about making sport bigger. And the only way you can do that is by making more money for the sport and for the people that play it. Fascinating stuff there from Barry Hearn. It makes me wonder if it's not too late for the ECB to get him involved and try to ensure certainly a commercial future for the game of cricket. Another big fan that we've had on the show is Geoffrey Archer. He's been on a few times uh, and always, always happy to uh, have a chat with us. On this excerpt, he tells us about his love of Somerset, about how he wants to see them win the county championship and his general love of the game. I would do anything to see Somerset win the county championship. I'm 81. I started supporting them in Clarence Park, Western Supermare, when I was six years old. We've been second five times. We were top equal once and they took it away from us because they gave it to the team. They gave it to Nottingham, who had more wins. And then there was that disgraceful business at Lords when Middlesex were playing Yorkshire oh. and they fixed the score and said, look, we'll score 260. And then if you get it, it was absolute fix. We were in the lead at the time and they overtook us by a complete fix, Middlesex and Yorkshire, a complete <laughs> fix. What about white ball cricket? Because um, there was another disappointment this year, wasn't there, with uh, Somerset getting pipped at the post in the T20 Blast final at Edgbaston. Um, does that count in your... Are you a fan of well, white ball cricket? I've attended the one-day victory when Ian Botham and Viv Richards and the great Joel Garner uh, killed the Worcestershire. So I've seen us win a one-dayer, and I've seen us... And, of course, we got to the final of the 2020, as you said. Mm. But for me, cricket, you have to win the county championship. And when I was a child, I watched Surrey win it seven years in a row. But real cricket for me is unquestionably a test match. I I think a five-day test between Australia and England, that's the real thing. I went to two Ashes tests in Australia. The Australians love their cricket. I mean, I, I go to Lords and watch a test match at Lords. The ground will be full around about midday. You go to Brisbane for the opening test against Australia. The ground is full half an hour before the first ball is bowled. They are all there for the first ball. They take it very seriously indeed. 
think it is. I think the Ashes in Australia is probably a bigger thing than anyone here could imagine. I, I, I struggle to find a comparison in UK sport. I mean, in the old days, I would have said maybe the cup final, but the cup final has dwindled. But certainly, when the Ashes go down under, uh, no. it's a massive, massive no. thing. Uh, the equivalent, dare I say it, is if New Zealand play a match in Wellington, you'll feel the same atmosphere. I've been only once in my life have I been to a test match with New Zealand in New Zealand, and I can assure you it's pretty amazing. <laughs> I thought you were going to say New Zealand rugby then. I would imagine that the All Blacks playing at home in New Zealand is a, is a significant draw. Well, I was doing a book tour there, Paul, and I went to, it's wicked of me not to remember, but I went to a small town and I, I was chatting to the, uh, the pub, a man in the pub, and, and they said, yes, uh, we've got a match this afternoon. And it was, uh, and, and it, as I say, it was a small town. And I said, how many, how many did your stadium hold? Uh, and he said, 20,000. And I said, well, wait a moment, how big is your town? He said, 60,000. I said, wow. Well, he said, you can't get tickets. It's sold out every single week. So that gives you a clue. In, in, and he said, we've got two All Blacks in the side. So they take the 60,000 town, 20,000 people, 20,000 of them are going off to watch their local team below the All Blacks. I mean, you have to queue. Uh, I remember that story, or forgive this, Darren. I remember that story uh, many years ago uh, when there was no television and you couldn't watch a test match in New Zealand unless you actually purchased a ticket. And there was an advertisement in the uh, Wellington Times saying, I will marry anyone who has a ticket for the Lions versus All Blacks. And please send a photo of the ticket. <laughs> I'll tell you my mighty Essex story. Go on. Graham Gooch rang me and said, what I do would I do the speech for their winning team? You remember they won the county championship again. again. This was many years ago, 20, 30 years ago. Uh, and I said, yes, of course. And then the prime minister, Margaret Thatcher, called a general election. So I had to ring Gooch and say, I'm, I'm, I'm very sorry, Gucci, but uh, you know the rule when there's a general election for one month, we don't do anything else but that. We're, literally, every minute is taken up. He said, yes, I, I totally understand. Can I put you down for next year? And I said, yes, of course you can, Graham. He said, but you may not be the champions. He said, yes, we will. And they were. <laughs> and I turned up the later. <laughs> Community radio for Brentwood and Billericay. This is Phoenix FM. One of our big supporters, Mr. Mark Butcher, joined us in the studio in uh, Christmas 2020 and we talked about a range of subjects and he was, as always, on top form. The music thing, has it, has it been, you know, all the way through your life? Did it go back to you being a youngster, being uh, sort of playing and in, in, interested in music? Yeah, pretty much. Um, I got my first guitar at sort of age 11 or 12. Uh, Mum sort of stumped up for a, for a, a knockoff. Telecaster copy or something for oh, right. back in back in those days, but I'd always sort of been a singer really before then, so I had no um, 
musical training as such, but had always sort of performed as a as a vocalist. Uh, and then sort of the guitar playing sort of caught up, and I sort of started writing songs about 14, 15, and had been in bands probably much pretty much since I was 17 years old. Um, so they they kind of ran parallel-ish. Um, the cricket obviously took uh, took precedent, which is. Which was absolutely right. I mean, it's the only thing I ever imagined I would do was be a mm. cricket player. The, the sort of the music side of things was always a, a, a hobby until until much later. Does does the life of a cricketer kind of go hand in hand with the music? Because particularly at the level that you played and for the, for the length of time you played at that level, mm. there's a lot of time sat in hotel rooms or on buses or on aeroplanes. Does that give you the time and the kind of mental space to be writing songs or, you know, coming up with tunes? It, yeah, it does a bit. I mean, it, perhaps more so now than it did when I was playing. Um, again, you, you know, on, on tours, they're kind of, even though you have quite a bit of downtime, this, this, they're kind of pressurised things. You're, you're generally thinking about the game that's gone or the one that's coming. Um, and so even on, you know, on the, the plane journeys or, um, you know, the, in hotel times, it's very difficult to remove yourself completely from, from what you're there for. Yeah. Um, uh, so you know, I'd take a take a guitar along to relax, as opposed to to sort of actually doing anything constructive. Um, but nowadays, you know, I, I, so many sort of bits of songs or lyrics or whatever come to me while I'm travelling, sort of doing the travelling around the world, doing the commentary stuff, because the brain is kind of a little bit more open mm. um, than perhaps it was when I was playing. And you find that with you know, professional sports people are. As much as some some of them feel seem as though they're completely and utterly engaged in, in being, you know, in, in in the sport and and complete badges, you know, Cookie's a great example of somebody who you would imagine is 100% focused almost all of the time on being a on being a batsman. Um, you know, there are people like that, but there are also other guys who 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 seem much less engaged, but. The brain is always turning that yeah. over too, you know. So there, there isn't an enormous amount of space to do other things whilst you're in the in the midst of a career. The stuff this year with Michael Holding um, around sort of you know the, the George Floyd, the Black Lives Matter thing was was unbelievably powerful telly. And um, you know, I suppose again, sort of going back to that no regrets thing. If you hadn't, if if we hadn't have had this bizarre year, we wouldn't have had an hour or two hours of, of that that at the beginning of the season. Um, to sort of kick the whole thing off, which was some of the most powerful stuff I've seen on the team. That, that was incredible, that morning of cricket. I mean, there was so much, um, because it was the first cricket that we'd seen all year. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and this big thing of the West Indies coming over and taking the, you know, the not inconsiderable risk of making the trip uh, and all the measures and everything. So it, it had enough emotion behind the event anyway. And um, for then the whole thing with yeah. the West Indies, of all people being there, um, with all the social events that were going on for that and that morning of cricket yeah. you know well i mean it, it rained didn't it i mean that was the thing it had had we not had the the two hour rain delay on day one of the test match none of that stuff would have happened You'd have, the, the piece had been filmed with mikey and um and ebony uh and that would have gone out either at lunchtime or at the start of play i can't remember how it was how it was scheduled um and then, of course, you had this two hours with, with no cricket. They had no, you know, they didn't have anything else to put to play in. You know, you couldn't do player interviews. All of that kind of stuff was out the window. Um, so the conversation continued, and sort of Mikey and oh, Mikey was unbelievable that day. Oh. And, and um, I got a call from, I got a call from uh, Mark Austin, who's, who now does the, the the Sky News anchor, who's been ITV News, whatever. That's proper, right. Yeah. 
proper news journalist called me and said, uh, you know, would you come on the, the show and talk about what what happened there today? And I sort of said, well, why 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 the hell would you want me? You know, <laughs> you, why don't you why don't you try and get in contact with Jeffrey with was the, busy, wasn't with he? the man himself, with the man himself? You know, yes, yeah. um, because all I'd be doing was was trying to articulate the strength of feeling that Mikey had. You know, I've got my own my own tales, but. It was nothing compared to what uh, to what came out that day. Unbelievable! And and when you think with someone like Mikey, um, who was around when all the rebel tours were going on, and um, you know West Indian cricket and what West Indian players had to put up with mm. um, back in the sort of seventies and eighties, um, it kind of it was almost like the whole thing just came flooding out of him. Yeah. Um, I think, and also, I think you know, beyond the cricket side of things, you know, people sort of talking about it as though it's it's cricket is is this separate bubble from society. I mean, I know that from Mikey's point of view, a lot of that was 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 built up around the feelings that he had of of that were inexplicable towards things that had happened to his parents. You know, um, so you know, it was it put it this way, it was an extraordinary. We don't perhaps need to go over the go over the no. ground, but it was. But it was an incredible sort of morning of, of, uh, of, of broadcasting more than anything else. Cricket in formats or whatever, you know, T20, some people still very sniffy about that, 18 years on from the first time it was seen. And others are thinking, well, you know, T20's getting a little bit dull, we need to make it 100 balls or we need to have 10 overs, whatever it might be. You know, but the game is still the game. You know, mm. Guys are still bowling and batting. Um, they're doing it over a short period of time. But the notes are the notes, right? Yeah. Yeah, there there are only however many of them there are. I've I've over the year I've advocated for sort of fewer fewer teams in in a in a T20 league in the UK, in order to try and to try and concentrate talent. That didn't mean that there would be no you know that that you wouldn't that the 18 counties would not have play T20 cricket in any yeah. way shape or form. It just meant that if you get you kind of it would be a, a graded thing where you'd have the you know the the sort of elite. Um, you know the elite competition that that sort of generates money and, and more clicks and more advertising and all the all that other kind of stuff. Um, I, I, st- I still I'm not entirely sure that a different that five ball overs. If you're talking about trying to attract new people to the game of cricket, I would I would vouch that pretty much one of the things that nearly everybody knows about the game of cricket is there's six balls in an over, and that's the one thing that's disappeared. You know, <laughs> that, we are where we are. That the hundred is coming regardless yeah. of, of, of whether yeah. you want it or not. I, I would still like to have seen the the um, the existing T20, the blast with all of the 18 counties. I'd like to have seen that um, be be conjoined to the new competition i.e. you know that the counties play that in a much smaller format maybe you have maybe you add Ireland and Scotland um, to make 20 then you have four groups of five you play out the group stages uh, you have finals whatever you then do the auction at the back end of, of what's already happened you know so that it's, it's kind of right in front of you logistical problems with overseas players I get it you know all that type of thing but I'd have made it so that one was 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 kind of pertinent to the other Whereas the way that things seem to have gone with the, with a hundred is kind of like this: the hundred is now battling against yeah. the existing um, the existing fan base, the existing existing sport, and I'm not sure that, that that that's viable. And and that you know breaking into the England scene back then, so that was a, quite a, a sort of a, a transitional point in, in in the England team in sort of early nineties and. I know Sky. I've done that documentary, England in the nineties, and it's quite. Oh yeah, I wonder who came up with that idea. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's that, and you know, talk about sort of, sort of 
varied careers or different sort of different sort of ways of, of my career has branched off. I mean, that's one of the things I'm as proud of as anything. You know, the the, the two albums, the playing for England, all the rest of it. Um, I went to Sky with the, with the idea for England in the 90s. So look, you know, everyone always says that it's the worst possible sporting era for for a team. Um, let's 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 explore it. Let's see if it was. I'm, I'm not sure that it was. I think the 80s was probably worse, as, as Athers says so, quite so eloquently at the, at the beginning. Maybe that was a bad edit. Maybe we should have left him saying that till the end. But, anyway, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but you know, that, that was my baby. You know, I did all the research for the interviews and we kind of, myself and a young producer called Alex Jackson, who sort of came up with the, certainly not his idea, but of doing it so that it was more like testimony than interview. So I, I sort of sat to the side of the camera and threw people sort of introductions, I suppose, and just got them to tell the story down the lens so it feels um, mm. sort of intimate, etc. Um, and it was, you know, I, I was absolutely loved doing it, loved, loved the whole process of, of, of being involved in sort of co-producing something like that. Um, and, and the end result was pretty good. You know, you pick the music for oh, the viewers and all the rest of it. Yeah. Uh, the only problem with it is, is once the, the, the rights rights have got got, uh, got lost, Sky lost the rights to Aussie, Aussie cricket, so with all the clips we had on there from, from Australia, from Ashes series over, over abroad, we kind of can't show it. Well, mm. Sky can't show I say we. Sky can't show it at the moment, so it's in mothballs, but it, it will be back. So they had Clayton Lambert and Phil O'Wallace opening the band for them. Yeah. Two guys who kind of, you know, would have loved T20 had they been around at the time because they just stand there and just teed off. I remember Dean Headley bowling um, on the on the evening of it must have been the, the the evening of the day four in that Test match. Dino's got three slips of gully, long off and long on, to to Phil O'Wallace. <laughs> I've never seen a field like it in Test match cricket before, but that was, you know, that was kind of bizarre. It was funny old days, I mean, and of course, at the end of that, at the end of that trip, I mean, I played five. We played six tests because the, the Sabina Park Test match got abandoned. Oh yeah, that stink, by the way. I got a, I got a first baller in that game. The game got called off like three overs later, and um, and and the, the scorer came in. I wasn't supposed to be playing the Test match. Um, I hadn't. We'd been in we'd been in the West Indies. The days where the tours lasted, they were proper long. Yeah. So we we were in Antigua in, in Jolly Harbour, um, all inclusive with the old wristbands on for a month <laughs> before the first test match. Completely bonkers. And there were no nets. Um, so we had a, there were one or two uh, one or two practice matches. I, I wasn't in any of them. wasn't just wasn't going to play. Um, on the on the morning of the test match, Jack Russell went down with a with a stomach complaint. Always was smart, was Jack. <laughs> anyway, so so five minutes before the toss, Stewie comes over to me and says, Butch, you're playing, and we want you to bat three. Is that all right? And I just looked at him like, what, OK? <laughs> all right. As you do. <laughs> no problem. I mean, what's the worst that could happen? You know, this could be great. I've had no time to sort of have sleepless nights about Curtly and Courtney because I no idea that I was going to play. And it was literally my first ball, the first ball I'd faced from a bowler on tour. <sighs> and we'd been there a month. And it. Who was it? Who's about? Look it up on YouTube. It's kind of Kurt Courtney hasn't even run in, not even running in, Hmm. and he literally bowls his ball back of length. I just shuffle onto the back foot, and the thing just flies at me, and I got the 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 top of the handle had a red cherry on. You know where it says SH on the top of your handle? Yeah. Red cherry right there because I just managed to catch it before it hit me straight in the nose, and it went straight up in the air. Cool. I got back in the dressing room to find my uh, my county captain and best mate in the game, Adam Hollyoke, absolutely peeing himself. <laughs> 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 uh, 
walked out to bat first over, I think, um, at number three. And Fidel runs in, in, you know, and he was rapid in those days, you know, proper quick with that ridiculous low arm. Yeah. And he lets go of this ball. And I kind of, I, I think the only time really in my career where I actually just turned, turned my head away because I, I had no idea where it had come from. I just turned my head away and waited for the clang. And he pitched the bloody thing up, the idiot, and it, it, it hit me on the hit me on the wrist and dropped sort of just down in front of my stumps. I was like, "Whoa, okay, you got to wake up now. It's, it could be really, really bad." Pay attention. And so, so Nasser and I, I don't know, we, we put on 150 or something for the third wicket, in between rainstorms and going on and off for rain and bad light and all that kind of stuff. And I got I got 60, but I swear it was worth. In my mind, it was worth about 200. That. I never ever had so many bruises, and and would never felt so beaten coming off the field as that, as that little knock out there. So you know you're right. It wasn't Ambrose and Walsh, but that but going in between the rain showers and they kept having a rest, so they didn't ever end the spell. Yeah. Tino and, and Fidel on that uh, on that pitch at Sabrina Park was was the most torrid I think I ever had it in my in my <sighs> career. It was quite something. You got a favourite place that you like going to for uh, for commentating? Um, like any, anywhere will do. <laughs> Brentwood's great. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I don't know. I mean, it, it's it's all good. The South Africa trip was was fantastic. It, all of these places are very different when you go as as a broadcaster as opposed to as yeah, a that's right. Because you see stuff, you know, you, you see things, you you meet people, you get to have a lot more fun. <laughs> you're, not, you're not under lock and key quite as often as you were, as you are as a player. Or at least they tried to keep us under lock and key anyway back in the old days. Um, so yeah, I mean, everywhere is great. I, I, I mean, I, I vowed without you know again without sort of upsetting any of of, of our myriad Bangladeshi listeners I, I remember I vowed never to go back there again after touring there as a player oh, really? but then I've been back as a commentator since and had a great time you know really enjoyed it and yeah. um, you know enjoyed people and the, and the uh, you know the cuisine the, the, the humidity can probably give it a rest every once in a while but, <laughs> Mozzies. Uh, but other than that you know it's all good right? it's difficult to complain about a gig where you sit and talk nonsense about cricket as you two boys well know well, that's it. I hope you've enjoyed this special compilation show where we've looked back at just some of the great guests that we've had down the years on 98 and about. Many thanks to everyone that supported and contributed. Thanks for listening to 98 Not Out, the cricket podcast. Please subscribe to the show in your podcast app to make sure you see the new episode each week as it appears in your feed. And if you enjoy the show, we'd really appreciate it if you could leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts to help us introduce the show to even more people. Thank you so much, and we'll catch you on the next episode.